We are beginning a new series in Ecclesiastes starting in January, and it's a great book. It's a great book for newer believers, but for all of us. It's a reminder that God has given us many, many good gifts. Having said that, when we begin to look to those gifts for ultimate fulfillment, they not only can't fulfill, they often get in the way of true joy and start deflecting what is really important in our lives. I think you will enjoy this book, written probably most likely by Solomon as an older man, reflecting back in his journal on the things that he tried and how he, in essence, became a bit of a train wreck in life and what he learned from it about the importance of fearing God. One other thing coming in January, and that is, Becky and I have the privilege of teaching a parenting class. It'll be only for six Wednesday nights in a row starting January 12th. Uh, Space is limited. You would need to sign up for that, but we have taught this in the past, but not here. And so we're looking forward to that. January 12th on Wednesday nights here on the campus. It'll be just for six Wednesday nights in a row. Strongly encourage you if you're a parent or soon to be a parent or a grandparent to consider uh, joining us for that. I invite you to open God's Word this morning to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. As you do that, I'd like to lead us in prayer this morning. From Psalm 119, we read this about God's Word. Your Word, Lord, is eternal. And it stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. stands fixed in the heavens. Our gracious Father, we are a needy people. We need to be forgiven for our selfishness and sin. Some of us even this morning on the way here had an argument or a fight. We need encouragement today. We need help. We need hope. We need to be fed. Some of us need salvation. Some of us, Father, need healing in a marriage or physical healing or emotional healing. We need to experience you today. So my prayer for, as a pastor this morning, Father, whether we're born again or not, whether we're saved or not, as we leave here today, that we would have no doubt we have been in the presence of the living God and His people. So that whatever else we're doing on this new Sabbath, we wouldn't just view this as something to come check off and go do other things and be busy today. But that this would feed into a day of rest, worship, and reconnection. We pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 45, if you have not, this weekend in light of Advent. We're looking at this very remarkable psalm, a psalm that in its historical context is a royal wedding psalm. It's always important when you're looking at Scripture, first of all, what's the original grammatical historical context? Here it is, a royal wedding psalm composed for an ancient Israelite king. A psalm written about a thousand years before Jesus was even born, but then applied to Jesus in the letter to Hebrews in the New Testament. 
We call these types of psalms that look ahead to Messiah, we call these messianic psalms. And there's a number of them in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 45 is perfectly suited for Advent and Christmas. It is saturated with gospel imagery. And it is a great psalm to turn to this morning as we continue in Advent looking to the birth of Jesus. So we're going to see two, thoughts, two things in this psalm. Number one, splendor of the king. And number two, the identity of the king. So let me begin with the splendor of the king. Let me back up for a minute talk about historical context. Psalm 45, a little unusual in the psalms, the Psalter, it is a royal wedding song. That's not real common in the psalms. Hebrew scholars point out that in order to understand it, you really need to understand the original context and something of ancient wedding customs in the Middle East, which are rather different than in the West. Uh, if you've been to a wedding in another culture, Latin America or Asia or the Middle East, you may know or may realize that weddings in much of the world are much bigger deal than here in America as far as the actual ceremony itself. Be Becky and I have had the privilege to meet a couple of different weddings in either Asia or in India and wow, they go all out. Our son Ben and his wife Ellie just sent us some photographs of a wedding they were at in Pakistan. These are huge events, huge events compared to what we do here in the States. And here, a couple of things. Number one, I need to know that in ancient Middle East, uh, there was a period called the betrothal period prior to the actual wedding. The betrothal period was a little different than anything we have in the West today. It was uh, more formal and more legally binding than engagement is. You, know, you can break off an engagement here without any legal, legal entanglement. You could not do so quite as easily with a betrothal, an, an official betrothal. And then when the wedding day finally came, friends and attendants would go to the, they would gather at the bride's home and help her get regaled in all of her beauty. And at the same time, attendants of the groom would gather at his house Typically, we're talking smaller rural settings. And there would be a grand procession then in the streets as the groom and his entourage went to fetch his bride. The entire party would march uh, and, then, and then they would go to the bride's house and then get her. And then they, the whole wedding party then would go back to the groom's house. That was a standard, fairly standard template. Having said that, this is an unusual wedding, royal wedding song because... The bride doesn't even appear really until the end of verse 9. Really, it is not addressed until verse 10. She's not even spoken to until verse 10. And then she's given a bit of a firm talking to. So there's a number of uh, kind of wonky, that's not a Hebrew word, wonky things going on as you, as you wade into this psalm. The majority of the psalm is about the splendor of the king. That's what the majority of the psalm is about. And what a king this is. So let us dive in. I'm going to show you just a couple specifics that are extolled, exalted about this great king. Number one, his appearance, the splendor of his appearance, verses one and two. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Verse two. You are the most excellent of men. The NIV says excellent. The Hebrew word actually 
focuses more on external appearance. That's made a little more explicit in a few other English translations, but the, it's really talking about his external appearance, his beauty. So he's the splendor of his beauty. Secondly, verse 2, of his lips, his speech, his words. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. So we have the splendor of his appearance, the splendor of his words and his speech. Third, now is celebrated his military prowess, his military victories. In verses 3 to 5, the king's victories. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. Again, this talk about the king. It was on his wedding day. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Think about those three words applied to any political leader. How much you want to see those words in a political leader at any level. Truth, humility, justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. The writer goes on to celebrate the king's military victories. Let your sharp arrows pierce the heart of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. That's quite the honor. So we have his appearance, the splendor of his speech, his words, the splendor of his military victories, and then fourthly, the splendor of his reign, R-E-I-G-N. This is quite a, a, a reign, verses 6 through 9. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Oh, to see that in a leader. Therefore, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your honored women, and at your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, this is the ideal king. This is a king of justice. This is a king of virtue, a king of mighty beauty and victories, and a king of justice. What a king. What a leader. I mean, we would all rise up and say, that's the kind of leader we want. Finally, starting in verse 10, the bride is spoken to, but not quite in the way you might think. She's given some rather blunt, urgent advice. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Now, I, I've done dozens of weddings, and I, I give a charge to the bride and the groom. And in that charge, there is a bit of a challenge. And depending on the wording of their vows and how I word the sermon, there is a challenge to leave and cleave. I've never quite looked at a bride and said, Forget that half of the auditorium. Focus over here, you're done with them. Not sure I'd go over well. I mean, it's implied that her allegiance needs to shift. Authority lines need to shift. But I've never just said, forget them and focus here. This is, this is strong wording. Listen, daughter, pay careful attention. Forget your people in your father's house. Let the king... Be enthralled by your beauty. Honor Him. He is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. Then the bride is led out to the king. 
All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold, embroidered garments. She is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. This is all standard protocol for an ancient military, I mean an ancient, uh, well, military royal wedding in the Middle East. So you have her entourage, her virgin companions, they follow her. Notice that it's assumed you're a virgin prior to marriage. That just goes without saying in the ancient Middle East, the ancient world. Then verse 15, they're led with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Just a beautiful picture. And then lastly, in verses 16 and 17, notice it starts with a pronoun, your. So in English, in virtually every English translation I checked, there's some ambiguity here, your. First you're talking to the king, then you're talking to the queen, or the princess who will become a queen. And then you get to your sons, and so you got a little bit of ambiguity. Who's the your, the, 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 you know, the king or the princess? The Hebrew is very explicit. These are masculine pronouns. So just as a reminder, translation is always challenging. <laughs> and so we, we don't really have pronouns masculine or not in that sense, like when it comes to the word you. But these are masculine pronouns. So it's very clear. We're talking now back to the king. Your sons will take the place of your father's. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory. That is the king. Again, a masculine pronoun in Hebrew. Through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. So the king's reign is celebrated as one that will impact the nations. Right there. King in the line of David is firmly established on the throne of Israel. The people are celebrating. And his kingdom is said to be global and forever and ever. What you're seeing right here are the, the promises made to Abraham about all nations will be blessed through him and the promises then even narrowed, made through David of a king coming through his line are being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. That's what is being celebrated here. That takes us secondly to the identity of this king. Who is this ancient king? You may have marginal notes, you may have notes Based on what study Bible you have, there have been a lot of suggestions. The two most obvious candidates that keep coming up are David or Solomon. And the problem is none of, the, none of the coordinates fit exactly David or Solomon. For example, verses 3 and 5 tell us this king is a warrior. Solomon was never a warrior or a soldier. It's really difficult to find any king in Judah or Israel that exactly fits this description. Especially, look at verse 5. What, is, what does the text say? We always want to keep our finger in the text. The king's, his dominion is celebrated as a world dominion. That's a little unusual to say for a king. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. And then more so, verse 17. Now we're out of the realm of a human being. The king is to be praised forever. He's not only global and worldwide, his praise is to go on forever. The nations, all the nations, will praise you forever and ever. Well, you, you don't say that of a human king. Every human king may wish for that, but that's not going to happen. The psalm is clearly pointing beyond a human king. Interestingly, when you look back through some of the interpretations and writings of ancient rabbis who were not Christians, even they have no problem saying Psalm 45 is not speaking just of a human king, it's speaking of Messiah. That's very clear. So we have strong precedence both in the history of interpretation in the church, but even with the rabbis in the Jewish community that this is Messiah, very clearly. 
Uh, some of you know that the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon in London back in the 1800s, largest church on the planet, wrote a three-volume commentary on the Psalms called the Treasury of David. And Spurgeon says this about Psalm 45, as only Spurgeon can. Speaking of, well, who is this king? He says, quote, some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. They're short-sighted. Others see both Solomon and Christ. They're cross-eyed. Well-focused spiritual eyes see Jesus only. Close call. <laughs> and I think Spurgeon's spot on. A contemporary uh, Old Testament scholar right now in the UK, Christopher Ash, who's written some really good stuff. He makes an observation about how the Psalms and interpreting the Psalms has actually shifted in the last 500 years. He was giving a series of lectures uh, a couple years ago, the Gein's Lectures at Southern Seminary down in Louisville. And he was lecturing on the Psalms, and he said this at one point. He said, for the first 1,500 years of church history, Christians almost exclusively read the Psalms in a Christ-centered way. In other words, the righteous man in Psalm 1 was seen as Jesus, not just anyone. And that usually there was a Christ-centered focus no matter how you read a psalm or what psalm you were reading. And then Ash went on to say, this interpretive approach changed for some reason during the Reformation and shifted, perhaps coming through the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and all that, to the point where today the modern evangelical church, especially in the West, hardly sees Jesus in any of the Psalms unless there's some kind of explicit reference. And he said this shifted. He said the Psalms are not just general, they are messianic in total, and they do point to Jesus, and we need to remember that in reading them, and that's how the first 1,500 years of the church read the Psalms. So this one in particular, we should have no problem, as Spurgeon said, seeing this is Jesus that's being talked about. There may have been an earthly ancient king that some of this applied to, but the language is so extreme and extravagant and global, it's very clear this is applying to Jesus. And if there's any doubt, this is where the New Testament letter to the Hebrews puts that doubt to rest. I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, the passage that Bree read for us this morning. Because as sometimes happens in the Bible, a New Testament writer will pick up an Old Testament quote and apply it to Jesus, ending all doubts about how to interpret a passage. Hebrews, towards the end of your New Testament, chapter 1. Hebrews is not so much of a book, it's really two things. It's a letter and a sermon. That's the best way to characterize Hebrews. And it's written to Jewish Christians who had left behind Judaism, family, friends, ritual, and they were following Jesus, and they were under intense persecution, and they were being tempted to turn back. And so Hebrews is a letter and a sermon. It kind of has characteristics of both. It's very intense. It's very passionate. And it is a letter filled, it's a sermon filled with warning, challenge, and promise to stay focused on Jesus. That's why it is probably the most Christ-centered book in the New Testament in that sense. Hebrews is both a sermon and a letter filled with ch uh, challenges and warnings. Don't turn back. 
And it applies to us here today. Some of us have left Christ for other, you know, we've left family behind or we've left sinful lifestyle behind or we've left something behind. And at times under pressure, we get tempted to turn back. And the challenge of Hebrews is don't turn back. Keep focused on Christ. And with that in mind, we come to chapter 1. And I want us to notice the emphasis on Jesus and then what the author is going to do with Psalm 45. So first of all, let me just read verses 3 to 5. Bree read some of this. Notice the relentless Christological focus on Christ here. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. That is quite the wording, the theology there. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Christ sustains everything simply by His spoken Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. And so He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Now notice how the author moves on. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verses 8 and 9, he now is going to borrow directly from Psalm 45 and apply it to Jesus. So, verses 8 and 9. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteous and righteousness and hated wickedness. Wouldn't it be great to say that of every elected leader? That they love righteousness, that they hate wickedness. We should pray for that in our political leaders. Becky and I yesterday, just on one of our walks, we have a card we pray through and with all kinds of categories on it. Yesterday, one of the categories that came up, president and senators for our state, Supreme Court, our governor, and we prayed through those categories Put the names in those slots. We know that most of those people are not born again. But we prayed for those individuals by name that they would be men and women who would love righteousness and would be converted, that some of them actually might get saved. We're to do that. We're commanded to do that in in, in the Bible, to pray for those in authority over us. So you have these two verses, 8 and 9. 9 says, this one loves righteousness, hates wickedness, therefore your God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And then in 10 through 12, verses 10 to 12, the author quotes from Psalm 102 and applies it to Jesus. Five different Psalms, by the way, are quoted in chapter 1. Psalm 2, Psalm 10, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. That's why this is a book not only saturated in Jesus, is saturated in the Old Testament. So in verses 10 to 12, the author now is quoting from Psalm 102 and applying that to Jesus. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. So let me, let me just summarize 
if you're looking at your, your tablet or your phone or your Bible, look, look at the verses there for a minute. Start at verse 8 and look down through verse 12. In verse 8, the Father is addressing the Son as whom? God. But about the Son, He says, this is God the Father, He's calling the Son God. That's significant, which means that in the original context and then in Hebrews, the writer is applying to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, is applying to Jesus an Old Testament passage about Yahweh. That's significant because Psalm 45 is about God the Father, about Yahweh. That's God's personal name from Exodus 3. Nobody doubts that Psalm 45 is about Yahweh. The writer of Hebrews is taking a passage about Yahweh and applying it to Jesus. And then in verse 10, he called Lord. The Father calls the Son Lord. Verse 10 identifies Jesus as the, as the one who laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, boys and girls, the Bible could not be clear. That Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God had a name, Yahweh. In the New Testament, God has a name, Jesus. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is God in human skin, creator of the universe. That is why the early church had no problem, very early on, the church fathers, identifying Jesus as God incarnate in human flesh talking about the deity of Christ. Now, some of you know that God's name in the Old Testament is Yahweh, as we've said. It's used in the Hebrew Bible over 6,000 times, just over 6,000 times. If you open a Hebrew Bible, you will find the name Yahweh. A name, by the way, Jews are very hesitant to say out loud. You'll find that name mentioned about 6,000 times. Now, here's a, here's a little bit of interesting history, theology connection here. About 200 B.C., some of, you, some of you know, not all of you, some of you know that the Hebrew Bible, because Hebrew was falling out of usage as a language in the Middle East, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, Koine Greek, in Alexandria, Egypt. And that Greek Old Testament became known as the Septuagint, because the tradition was 70 men did it. We don't know that for sure, but... That became the Bible of the New Testament, by the way. That's the Bible Jesus quoted the most, the Septuagint. It was the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament. Here's my point. The Hebrew Bible uses Yahweh about 6,000 times. The translators of the Septuagint, when they were translating Hebrew into Greek in 200 B.C., they had to make a decision. What do we do with Yahweh? It's a Hebrew word. This is a Greek translation. What are we going to make the Greek equivalent for Yahweh? And they chose the Greek word kurios. And so now if you open a Septuagint, you'll find kurios about 6,000 times for God. Now it's not an accident that when it came time for the Holy Spirit to inspire the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applied to Jesus what title? Kurios. And in doing so, they were making an explicit connection, once again, that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Beyond this, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, is built on the Hebrew verb, I am. You have both 
of these words showing up in Exodus 3. God says, I am. That's not his name. But he tells Moses, you go tell the people who sent you. What does he go, go tell the people who sent him? I am. Now, it's kind of awkward in English. But God says, you go tell the people, I am sent you. That phrase, I am, that, that verb, Yahweh is built off that verb. And so in Jewish culture, when you hear the phrase, the title, I am, there's no doubt who's being referred to. Everybody knew who was being referred to. Everybody. And so it makes a passage like John chapter 8 that much more significant. What's going on in John chapter 8? Jesus is walking around. He's having an argument with Pharisees and he's having an argument with the Jews. And then they get into an argument about Abraham. And then Jesus makes his shocking statement. He made lots of extreme claims. Here's one of them. He said, Abraham looked forward to my day. Well, that really frosted their windshield. And they said, oh, you're not even 50 years old. And you knew Abraham? And then Jesus goes even further. He doesn't put the brakes on. He hits the accelerator. And he goes even further. And he says, I'll tell you more. Before Abraham even existed, what do he say? I am. It's awkward English, but it's good theology. I am. And what was the response? Oh, that's nice to know. What was the response? Violence. Why? Because in their eyes, in a Jewish worldview, you have a rabbi standing right in front of them who's less than whatever, 40 years old, who just said to them, I am from Exodus 3. That's who's standing in front of you. And they went bonkers. Another Hebrew word. And they got violent and tried to kill him for blasphemy. That's how significant this is. That's, that's why there's no doubt what's going on in Psalm 45 and in Hebrews 1 and in John 8. You cannot miss this. It's everywhere in our New Testament, page after page. You don't have to believe it, but it's there, page after page after page. Jesus is God in human skin. He says so. The early apostles said so. The writers of the New Testament said so. And the early church said so. Again, you don't have to believe it. That's your call. But it means you have a massive decision in front of your face. When I was a senior in high school, in my senior year, I took a social studies class, and sitting beside me was this nice Jehovah's Witness girl, really sweet gal, and we got along remark. I don't think we ever had hardly a tense word between us, but as I found out she was a Jehovah's Witness, and she found out that I was a Christian, we began to talk, and she would bring me book, uh, small books, I still have one or two in my office, uh, from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and I would bring her stuff, and, and we started writing you know, letters on notebook paper back and forth, uh, arguing theology. Very interesting. <laughs> and I, I pulled out some of the letters this week, I, I still have them. And we were talking about uh, John 1 and a whole bunch of other things, and who was Jesus, and what he came to do, and his identity, and what became very clear as I read for the first time, the literature of Jehovah's Witnesses, is that she was immensely sweet and sincere. This is not a statement about her at all, but it became very clear that the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society explicitly denies that Jesus is God. They explicitly deny the Trinity. They argue that Jesus is, is something less than God. In fact, they argue that he was Michael the archangel 
prior to his incarnation, that he's created by God, that he is a son of God in some form, but he's not God in human flesh by any means. And they say to say that is, is blasphemy. So they deny Jesus is Yahweh, but that's the historic position of the church. But more than that, it just leaps out of the New Testament over and over again. Here's what we both agreed on. We had lots of things we didn't agree on as we wrote these letters back and forth and talked and swapped literature through that whole semester. But the one thing that Marty and I agreed on as we talked back and forth is both of us agreed that it's a big deal and spiritually dangerous to get wrong who Jesus was and who he is. Both of us agreed with that. We had radically different views of who he was. But we both agree that if we, this is a big deal. And if we get this one wrong, we are in trouble spiritually. And so let's just, let me just put the question out there. Young people, let me just lay the question right out there. Why is it such a big deal if we're wrong about who Jesus is? Or, let me flip it over just a bit. Why is it a big deal if we're right about who Jesus is but respond to him wrongly? You can be orthodox with a small o. You can be correct about who Jesus is and go to hell. Case in point, the devil. Case in point, demons. They know exactly who Jesus is. They have a very orthodox Christology. They have a very accurate doctrine of Christ. They know exactly who he is. They know he's Yahweh in human flesh. But they have the wrong response to him. So why is it such a big deal? to be wrong about who Christ is, or to be right but have the wrong response. The implications are massive. Why? And the answer is this. Because Jesus made it very clear that He is God in human flesh, and that means that you and I have a massive decision hanging in front of us. Worship the King or ignore the King. And to refuse, according to the New Testament, to honor Jesus as the sovereign King is to reject the king of the universe to his face. Be no different than walking into the Oval Office and the president stands up to greet you and you mock him and say, you're not the president. This is a sham. Who do you think you are? As bad as that would be, imagine insulting the king of the universe. Mocking his kingship, rejecting his authority, dishonoring him, and in effect, calling Jesus a liar. That's what's at stake. And that's why John says in John 8, go back to John 8 for a minute, when he's having this argument with the Jews about who he was, and he says, I'll tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. He goes on in that chapter, and in verse 24, if you back up a little bit, he says this. He says, unless you believe I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Let me take that verse and break it apart just a bit. Number one, all English translations add a little bit there. They need to. It's legitimate because you have to, trans, you have to, you have to end up with English that makes sense. So almost all English translations say, unless you believe, Jesus says, unless you believe I am who I claim to be, that's okay. That's, that's. But the, the Greek text that is actually underlies that, the original text, all it says in the Greek is, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Well, once again, we have no doubt what it's saying. 
and the response to Jesus accordingly. Now, what does it mean to die in your sins? There's two ways to die according to the Bible. Every single person here this morning, from here all the way through over here, including me, if the Lord doesn't return, we, we all have an appointment with the undertaker. Good to remember that. And all of us are going to die one of two ways, either in our sins or in the Lord. The Bible speaks about dying in the Lord and dying in our sins. What does it mean to die in your sins? What does Jesus mean? Unless you believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. Sounds ominous. Well, it is. It sounds uh, deadly. It is. To die in your sins. To die in your sins means to die unforgiven. To die unreconciled to God. To be cast into the lake of fire and to be cut off from God forever. That's why Jesus, more than anyone else in the New Testament, issued warning after warning about hell and about God's judgment. The one that we call the beloved, the one that we call the loving shepherd, he was, was the one who issued the most warnings about the need to repent and believe in him. That brings us to our summons, and our summons, as we land this plane, comes right out of Psalm 45. So let me lift two summons right out of the text here in Psalm 45. First summons, verses 10 and 11. Our summons here, Psalm 45, verse 10 and 11. Summons number one is this. It comes from verses 10 and 11. We have to deny ourselves, submit to Jesus... If we're going to escape judgment, look at verse 10 and 11. And remember, this is about Jesus and our response to Jesus. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. This is talking to us. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled with your beauty. He is your Lord. Let the king be exalted. And then it says, bow to him. Bow to him. He is your Lord. That's significant. Some translations bow to Him. Remember, this is a psalm about Christ and our response. The verse, what's it calling us to do? This verse is calling us to abandon anything that is hindering us in following Jesus. Even family and clan. Family is one of the biggest idols that prevents us from following God and following God's will at times. I love family. I love my bios, my biological kids. I love my in-law kids. And I love my 10 grandkids. But they're not ultimate. God is. And this is a very clear passage that says, if I want to follow Christ, I have to make sure nothing is in the way including family. This is very consistent with what Jesus says. He says in Luke 14, if anyone comes after me and they do not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, you can't be my disciple. Can't be. Now, you may say, well, is that word for hate, like the real word for hate? It is. This is the Greek word for hate. Now, Jesus is not teaching us there to dishonor the fifth commandment. He's not saying we're literally going to go out and hate our parents and be nasty to them and 
That's not biblical, our siblings or our friends. What he is saying is if we're letting anything get in the way of something that God clearly is calling us to, first of all, salvation, but then even that, following his will, if something is preventing us, and the Bible knows that often it's family the most that's preventing us, that we are not to let that stop us. Author Walter Chantry, who has a great commentary on this section I love the way he put it, says it this way. It is painful to leave behind mother and father, son and daughter. We are attached to the beauties and friendships of this world. Forget them all. The king will more than make up for what you've left behind. Someday you will look back upon parting with temporal things and you will think that your hesitation was silly and ill-founded. That's putting it mildly. When you sit in the ivory palace, arrayed in the gold of Ophir, at the right hand of the eternal king, you will wonder what you saw in those former things, and you will never regret it. Close quote. I like that. I need that. So do you. So, summons number one, verses 10 and 11. If we want to follow Christ, we have to deny self, submit to Jesus. If need be, we even have to turn our back on family and friends. That doesn't mean we're not nice to them. That doesn't mean we never call them. That doesn't mean we don't FaceTime them. It does mean our allegiance switches and we follow Christ, even if we have to leave them geographically or emotionally. The second summons is to only true Christians, and it's in verses 11 and 13. So summons one, deny self, submit to Christ to escape the coming judgment. Summons number two, true Christians need to grasp and remember how Christ sees you, how he sees us. Chapter 45, verse 11, first part. Remember, this is Jesus and his people. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. In verse 13, this is something Christopher Ashe brought out in his commentary on Psalm 45. He said, notice how Christ views his bride. All glorious is the princess. And it's just a reminder that as Christ looks at his people, he sees his bride. In fact, in the New Testament, the church, those that are truly born again and redeemed, I know not everyone here here is, but if you know Christ and you're born again, you are part of what Jesus calls his bride, and those are words that are loaded with affection. Again, I've done dozens of weddings. I love standing up there. And I love watching the groom drool all over his bride. And especially when she's coming down the aisle. He is laser focused (laughs) on her beauty. Laser focused. And that's how the New Testament speaks of Christ and his people. The world may despise us. Our family may criticize us or shun us. But the king is enthralled with us. And Christ sings over his bride and will never let them go. And that should make the people of God a thankful people, a hope-filled people, a joyful people, a confident people, and a forgiving people. That is how Christ views his own. Amen? A tremendous encouragement from Scripture. Lord, thank you for Messianic Psalms. Forgive me, forgive us for how fast we sometimes whip over these kinds of passages and don't spend the time digging into them, 
connecting the dots between the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek Scriptures and seeing the richness that lays there as the Old Testament, New Testament tell us together Jesus is Lord and He loves His own with an everlasting love. We thank You and we praise You and we pray You would continue to build Your kingdom in our area through our church and other gospel preaching churches to your glory and the gain of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.